Investments can change seemingly as fast as the weather, as anyone with a thrift savings plan account can testify. Well, we can't forecast the investment weather, but we can look at the recent trends, which we'll do right now with certified financial planner Art Stein. Art, good to have you back. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me back. And let's talk about the last quarter of the TSP. I think at the end of last year, people were saying, happy days are here again, but I don't know. It doesn't quite look that way, does it? Well, this last quarter was a whole lot better than uh, last year where everything except the G fund had a solidly negative rate of return. And at least for the first three months of the year, everything has a positive rate of return. Uh, One unusual thing is that the I fund, the international stock fund, outperformed both the U.S. stock funds. And actually, that same thing is true over the last 12 months, where the U.S. stock funds are negative and the I fund is positive. And of course, that's something that we're seeing in international stocks just in general, that they've just had a very good quarter. One of the reasons being is that they've been beaten down so much that they've become quite a good buy. And international covers a lot of territory. Are these this particular I fund, the TSP I fund, is that mostly centered in Europe or does it have South America yeah. and maybe some African country, Asian countries? No. Uh, the international stock fund, the I fund, the index that's used doesn't cover a lot of territory. It's very narrowly focused. It's European countries, 25% is in British stock, and then various other European countries, 25% is in Japanese stocks, and then Australia, New Zealand, but for some reason, no investments in Canada, which I've never understood, which pretty much is a developed market as far as I'm concerned. Because that's the other thing about the international, the I fund in the TSP, it's only developed countries. So there's no investments in Latin America, many Asian countries outside Japan. TSP tried to change that to go to an index that made more sense, but they would were blocked by Congress because the index they were going to use invested in Chinese stocks. So it became a political issue, which, and I understand it, and actually relations with China are much worse now than they were when this whole controversy took place. So it's probably a good thing they didn't switch to that index, but it would be nice if they could switch to an index, broader coverage, but no China. All right. So the iFund, then, to get back to whatever it is, interesting Great Britain and Japan, two of the sort of shrinking and low-growth nations of the world. Exactly. This is the problem. But the stocks at least did well in the last quarter. Yeah, yeah. And and what about the rest of the funds? I mean, the G Fund, we know what that does. But besides the I and the uh, U.S. index, what are the other choices and how do they do? Well, we should mention the G Fund just for a second, because with the increase in interest rates, the G Fund return was really quite good. It was 1% for the quarter, you know, which is great. And um, bond fund was up 3%, C Fund up 7.5%, and the S Fund was up 6%. So just a really great quarter. And so for the people who were patient and stayed invested in those funds and didn't run to the G fund, they were definitely rewarded. Right. So then the classic kind of distribution that people had for many, many years seems to be coming back into the vogue or at least the good way to approach it for the long term. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, these kinds of returns where the stock funds 
you know, have about twice the rate of return of the bond funds, or even more when you look at the G fund. Historically, that's what we've seen over long periods of time, and that's why stocks have been a good investment for long-term investors, because they did have a much higher rate of return than the bond funds. Now, past performance, no guarantee of future performance, but there's no reason to think that will not continue. And let's talk about that G fund now. It has exceeded the popularity of the C fund? Yeah. You know, for many years, the G fund was by far the most popular fund. And that gradually changed over time. So in 2009, almost 50% of TSP investments were in the G fund. And less than 25% were in the C fund, which is an always been the next most popular fund. But the percentage in G gradually declined and the percentage in C gradually increased until just about in 2021, the percentage invested in C actually exceeded G for the first time ever. But since the market started declining, G funds become more popular C funds become less popular. Now there is once again more in G than C, which is an S&P 500 stock index fund. And it's not by a big amount, not by a large amount, but still I notice it because it makes me think that people are reacting to the decline in stocks by selling, you know, maybe after the stocks have gone down, uh, you know, getting nervous, selling at a loss, putting their money in G. And then the question becomes, well, when are they going to, you know, switch that? When are they going to go back to the stock funds? And most people don't. I mean, in, you know, my experience by far, most people never go back into uh, the stock funds once they pull out. Could it be also that people simply stopped putting in the C and for that duration of that horrible year of 2022, diverted what would have gone into the C as new investments, you know, their deductions from their payroll toward investment went to the G instead of the C and therefore the G kind of caught up. I mean, we can't necessarily say that it was withdrawals from the C in favor of the G. It just could have been a cessation of contributions to the C, whereas people went to the G instead because that did pretty well in 2022 relative to everything else. I agree completely. We don't know. And, um, you know, it'd be very interesting, you know, if someone was able to do a poll or something of TSP investors. Uh, the other problem that I have is TSP releases a graph with these percentages, but they don't release a table that shows the per- actual exact percentages over time, like on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis. If they did, that would allow us to actually analyze uh, investment flows, compare it to uh, stock market uh, increases and decreases. You know, it would be a very interesting way to look at it. But we can't do that, so we can't. All right. And while we have you, what's going on with the mutual fund window? That really is, uh, to me, a very uh, interesting situation. So the mutual fund window was open last year in June, and it allowed a certain amount, not a large amount, but a certain amount of funds in the TSP 
invested in a range of around four or five thousand different mutual funds. And, you know, there are a lot of details on that and the amount that can be taken out is limited. But what I noticed, and this is in the uh, January 31st statistical report that the uh, board puts out, the Federal Retirement Investment Board, I think it's saying, that in June, when the mutual fund window started, there was almost $60 million invested. And that has declined now to where there's only, there's less than 20 million invested, which is a big decline. The other thing, but at the same time, the number of accounts has increased from 1,000 to, I don't know, it's about 3,000. So it's like more people putting in smaller amounts, much smaller amounts. You know, to me, that's just a very surprising result. Well, Uh, now, the mutual fund window is something that's also available in 401ks in the private sector. My understanding is, you know, from what I've read, is that in general, in 401ks, some people take advantage of it, but it's not a very popular option. It certainly includes, uh, it requires more work, more knowledge, trying to compare 5,000 different mutual funds, you know, not an easy thing to do. But for people who, for instance, wanted to invest in ESG funds environmentally, correct funds, politically or socially correct funds, even religious, the religiously based funds, and they are out there. It does allow them to do that, but it doesn't appear that much money is going to that in the TSP. And that's kind of been the experience in the private sector, too. Well, federal investors are simply conservative investors, not politically, but financially. Uh, could be, but I don't know why the number is going down. You know, that was my surprise. I don't know why the dollar amount is declining. Again, we just don't know. Certified financial planner Art Stein, as always, thanks so much for the analysis. Okay. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to 
be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. 
And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. 
Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.